We're going to study God's Word together, so open your Bible, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. It's pretty much right in the middle of your Bible, so just flip it open in the middle and you'll be probably in the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah 9, if you'd follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So how many of you love a good plot twist? I think we're wired as humans to love story and to appreciate a plot twist. I looked up last night just for kicks what are some of the great, if I just Googled it, what are the greatest plot twists in all of cinematic history? And some might even be coming to mind for you. Some of these plot twists I'm not familiar with because I never saw, for example, Citizen Kane ranked very high. 1941, Citizen Kane, The Fight Club ranked very high. I don't know, maybe y'all can come up after and tell me what happened. 1999, Fight Club, uh, Sixth Sense. In 1999, there was a kid in the movie who said, I see dead people and some of you know why. Uh, others, you fast forward to 1980, Empire Strikes Back, where you get that moment where Luke discovers who his dad is, and it's uh, James Earl Jones, right? Or uh, Darth Vader kind of reveals that moment to him. Um, Christmas is the great plot twist. It's, it's God's announcement that he's going to flip the script, that there, there's this unveiling, and Advent is that unveiling. It's the unveiling of how God would eventually make, as one writer said, everything sad come untrue. God's gonna set the world to rights and it has everything to do with Emmanuel. It has everything to do with the child who's in the manger. God is gonna take history back. He's gonna take his world back. He's gonna renew all things in this one who is in the manger. So again, the first sign that God was gonna flip the script was the incarnation. The eternal son of God took on human nature and the amazing thing is Isaiah saw him coming a mile out. So Isaiah writes these words about the child who would be born 750 years before Christmas morning. So centuries before, God gave Isaiah the prophet eyes to see the significance of the arrival of the Christ child. 
And Isaiah preached the Messiah like nobody preached in the Old Testament. He, was the, he is the most electrifying preacher in the eighth century BC and he preaches Christ like no one else in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, so much so does he feature the Messiah and talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ when he would arrive that the early centuries of the Christian church referred to the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Isaiah. They put him right up there with the Gospels in terms of how clearly he laid out the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. So the Gospel lives right here in texts like Isaiah chapter 9. And Gospel means what? It's, it's a word that just means good news. So what's the good news of Advent? The reason Advent is good news is because the arrival of the Messiah spells three amazing things for the world. Number one, it spells the end of night. The end of night. So it's, it's interesting because in chapter nine, we're talking about light. We're talking about light breaking in on dark places right from the word go. People walking in darkness have seen a great light in verse two. So there it is at the beginning of chapter nine, but at the end of chapter eight where we just were, if, if you read up to it, it ends with Isaiah saying this. I hope you got your Bible open. Look down in verse 22, the end of chapter eight. They will look toward the earth and see only what? Distress and darkness and the gloom of affliction and they will be driven into, again this word, thick darkness. So there is spiritual darkness in this world. There's spiritual darkness in our world. And, and really, if you read through, we don't have time to do it this morning, but if you read through Isaiah 1 through Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah's just talking about all this bad stuff that's going on in the world. And what darkness represents in the first eight chapters of Isaiah is that God's people were compromised. They had spurned God's commands. They had rejected God's messengers and God's prophets. They had defiled God's worship. Chapter eight, verse 19, if you still have it open, talks about how they consulted mediums and spiritists. So there was a kind of paganism that was now being injected into the worship of God's people. Not only that, you read through these first eight chapters and you find that people are pursuing wealth instead of pursuing God. You find that they're trusting in political alliances with Egypt and others instead of trusting in God's protection. And they corrupted the court systems. The law systems had become a joke so that the rich people in their society could essentially pay for whatever outcomes they wanted in the law courts. And, and God is just saying through the prophet Isaiah, enough of all that. That's... Darkness, and, and the darkness that we see, you think about it, the darkness that we see in our world isn't new. You read through the first eight chapters of Isaiah and you're 750 years before the arrival of Jesus and it sounds like the evening news. It sounds like the very kinds of things that we see going on in our world, world news and even local news. It's possible because of something theologians call common grace. It's possible for Christians and non-Christians to, to name some of the evils that exist in this world and name them accurately together. Christians and non-Christians can look at evil and say, that's evil. That happens because of common grace. Where things, where the differences arise between Christians and non-Christians is when we start conversing about what's the ultimate remedy for those deep evils that we see in the world. And Christians understand this. This is a point of faith 
that the ultimate answer for all the evil things that we see in the world isn't produced by or conjured up by us. It's not policy reform as our ultimate remedy and our ultimate hope. It's not education as our ultimate remedy and our ultimate hope. Important as policy reform can be, important as education can be, we can't educate our way out of spiritual darkness. For that, we need light. We need light to shine, as the early church mentioned in, in the Latin, extra nos, to shine from outside of us, to, to come into this world, break in on planet Earth and make things right. We need light, and that's what Advent's all about. Light shining into dark places. And notice, the light of God dispels darkness and gloom in this passage. I'll say it again, the light of God dispels darkness and gloom. And I'm gonna quote to you, and it's going to be on the screen, the English Standard Version translation of chapter 8, verse 22, and chapter 9, verse 1, because it really brings out the contrast in a wonderful way. Chapter 8, verse 22 of Isaiah says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And you just wonder, how do we get to chapter nine, verse one, when we were just in gloom of anguish, how do we go from gloom of anguish in 8.22 to no gloom for her who is in anguish in one verse? And the answer is the God of the plot twist, the God of the surprise ending. Talk theology for a moment. So God has this ability that no human has. He's got lots of them. He has this ability where he can talk about the future as if it's in the past. He can talk about future events as if they've already happened. So certain is he that they will happen because they are in his sovereign purposes that he can speak of them in past tense verbs. And that's what happens in our text. In chapter nine, verse one, you see those words? In the future he will. So Isaiah is talking about something God is going to do in the future. But then in verse two, when it describes that event, it uses past tense verbs, you see it? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. God has that ability to call it from now, to call what's going to happen next Tuesday, to call what's gonna happen 10 years from now, 750 years from now. He can do that with absolute accuracy and certainty because he's God. <laughs> so in our house, uh, we have a couple of overthinker types. We have any overthinker types in the room? You're thinking about whether you're gonna raise your hand. Uh, so overthinker types, we've got a couple like black belt level overthinkers in, in our house. And if you're parenting an overthinker, you sometimes encounter what, what we have come to call the doomsday mode. And that is when the overthinker in question, and this will not be named, I'm not gonna name any of our kids, but where the overthinker in question goes doomsday mode and they just start, and they might be eight years old, but they're sitting there in the living room and they're just like, mom, dad, the future is so bleak. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no way for this to have a happy end. Nobody thinks I'm good at anything and we're like, we do, and they're like, you don't count. Uh, so, so then you gotta parent through all that, right? Then you go doomsday as the parent, right? Christian, when you start to go doomsday mode, it's good for you to remember this. The God who promises that all things will work together for your good, that God knows the end from the beginning. 
He's not like you. He's not making predictions based on likely outcomes. He's not like the best of meteorologists. He says, you know, current conditions in the northern front, and you know, that, that's not what he's doing. He can call it in advance because he's in charge. He's good and he's in control. His purposes for your life are trustworthy because he's God. He's not like you. He doesn't have your capacities plus steroids. He's God. And when he says the light in this text, light is going to shine in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, guess what's going to happen? The light's going to shine in Zebulun and Naphtali. He named the places in advance. Look at these spaces. Keep your eye on these places, Zebulun and Naphtali, because light's going to shine there and it's going to shine there first. And the interesting thing is, the armies of Assyria at this point were mustering up their strength in the north. Isaiah talks about the threat of Assyria and that it's coming. And the first places that Assyria is going to come, when they knock on the door of northern Israel, the first places they're going to come barging in are Zebulun and Naphtali. They're going to feel the darkness first and hardest. And God says, keep your eye on that place because that's the first place light's going to come. He's making a promise. It's the great reversal. It's God flipping the script. It's God saying right where the darkness staked its claim, that's where the light is gonna dawn. Verse one, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the land east of the Jordan and all the way to Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. It should be no surprise then when we fast forward those 750 years, we see Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. We see him coming of age. We see his ministry begin. Where's his ministry gonna begin? He's the light of the world. Where's the light gonna start shining? In Matthew chapter four, says, watch where Jesus goes. The very beginning of his ministry, Matthew four, verse 12, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, Galilee of the nations, he left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, and now he quotes 750 years earlier. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. God doesn't fulfill his promises on my timetable. He fulfills his promises on his timetable. And he fulfills all of his promises. That's the hope of the Christian. We remember that truth. So the end of night, second, the joy of freedom. The joy of freedom so these past tense verbs about future events that continues on, notice all the joy words in verse three. Look down. Verse three, you have, God, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. There's a lot of joy in there. There's a lot of rejoicing in there. But look at the connection in verse four. Where's the rejoicing come from? The word for, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. And just as we saw 
that there is spiritual darkness in our world, so there is oppression and injustice in our world. The Assyrian Empire was terrorizing the world at this time, 750, 740 BC, and Isaiah told them in advance, Assyria is gonna knock on the door to the north and you're gonna feel the heat of Assyria and then Babylon's coming after them and the, the empire of Babylon is the terror of all terrors. They're gonna be big enough to eat the fish of Assyria and everybody else with it. But God, in the midst of all these prophecies of Isaiah, things that are gonna happen in the future, he says, darkness isn't gonna have the last word. There's gonna be a new moment. I'm gonna flip the script. The story isn't over. This is not a doomsday scenario. Don't go doomsday mode on me. He reminds them of the day of Midian. He says, you remember what happened on the day of Midian? And they would have. That would have have been an automatic play button for them. You say the day of Midian, they immediately think of what happened back there in Judges chapter six and seven on the famous legendary day of Midian. Now for us, I'll give you a kind of mnemonic device, a memory aid what happened on the day of Midian is connected to a person whose name rhymes with Midian. Guess what it is? Gideon. So Gideon was an Old Testament war hero. And on the day of Midian, Gideon's army was up against the the hordes of their enemies opposing them. And that whole story, you can go back there and read it in Judges chapter six and seven. You talk about twist endings. Gideon's army was the most outmatched outgunned army in all of biblical history. And there are several moments where Israel's outgunned, but never more so than under Gideon in the day of Midian. The day of Midian became legendary because God defeated Israel's enemies, though they were massive and powerful, without them swinging a sword. They didn't even have to fight their own battles. Matter of fact, when they were going out, it was a very small band of people, if you remember. The army was very small. And Gideon's army goes out and he's commissioning them with their weapons. And he says, hey, make sure you go get this on your way out to the battlefield. And they go out and there are no swords. There's no, you know, it says grab a, grab a horn in one hand and grab a, a jar, a pitcher in one hand. So, the, so they're running out there and they got a trumpet and a mason jar and somehow God's gonna get the victory. And what they were supposed to do is blow the horn, drop the jar and the sound of the shattering glass and the sound of the horn and God was gonna use that in his sovereignty to throw the enemy into confusion, turn them on themselves and rout their greatest enemies. That's the legendary day of Midian. You didn't even have a sword on your person at the time when God routed your enemies, and basically what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah is, I'm gonna do that again. We're gonna rerun that one. We're gonna rerun that same play we ran back there in Judges 6 and 7. Matter of fact, in verse five, you see the boots of the soldiers won't be needed. You can burn them in the fire. You can sell the boots you've been using for war. You can sell them on eBay, right? Just whatever. You're not gonna need the warfare gear anymore. That's how gone your enemies are gonna be, (laughs) And if you ask the question after verse five, how's the battle gonna be won? Verse six tells you a child will be born. Four, how's the yoke gonna get shattered? Four, a child will be born. And now we're back at Advent. Now we're back at the promise of Christmas. The salvation of God leads the weary to rejoice. And they're weary because they're saddled with burdens and they're oppressed by their enemies who were too strong for them and they're rejoicing. The joy and rejoicing of verse three is explained by the word for, which opens verse four. The people rejoice for you have shattered their oppressive yoke. 
understand the good news of the message of the gospel that is at the heart of the Christian faith is not that God's gonna leave you enslaved in sin, but he's gonna give you some coping mechanisms to deal with it. No, the good news is far better than that. The good news is God is gonna set his people free from sin. God is still in the liberation business. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, he whom the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom's coming because I'm here. Isaiah called it 750 years in advance and I'm here. Chains are starting to break now. Now that the king has come. You talk about joy. When the ancient world tried to imagine the greatest joys, if you lived in the time of these people and in the place of these people, the two greatest joys you could possibly imagine were one, when the crops yielded a great harvest because it meant we can feast because God has provided for us. And the second was when the troops returned from battle with the spoils of victory in their hands because it means not only can we eat and feast, but we can sleep because we're safe. We can bed down tonight, not afraid, because God has protected us. And God is basically saying to them, all the best joys you've ever felt in Israel, it's gonna be like that on Christmas morning. When Jesus arrives, for everybody who understands the significance of his coming, it's gonna feel like harvest. It's gonna feel like a bumper crop that you've never imagined. It's gonna feel like the boys came home and we're safe. We can sleep at night tonight because he's driven off our enemies. So the end of night, the joy of freedom, and third, the reign of Christ. The reign of Christ. God's remedy to the world's wrong is a birth announcement. That might not land on us as shocking because we, we know the punchline. We, we've seen the plot twist. We've seen how it, how it goes down, right? Bear in mind, though, that in the Old Testament, if you announce the birth of a child, that could sometimes be um, a very rich and interesting, intriguing promise because some of God's most interesting promises in the Old Testament were attached to babies. So the offspring of the woman in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, will rise up and crush the head of the serpent. What is the Old Testament's greatest deliverer is a guy named Moses. He's gonna set the people free from slavery in Egypt. The first time you see Moses, he doesn't look like much. He's, he's a baby in a basket floating precariously down the Nile River. He doesn't look like he's gonna save anybody. Maybe he's not gonna save himself. He might not live on this little boat ride down the Nile, much less save millions of people from slavery under the most powerful man in the world. So interesting promises were attached to the arrival of children or babies in the Old Testament. But even, right, so even go with that. Even allow that as a backdrop. But still, how would you feel if a serious breathing down the neck and there's oppressive yoke that you're experiencing, how comforting is it for someone to say, the answer's coming because a child is gonna be born? <laughs> take, take, for example, a moment from history. So if you've ever seen the movie The Dark Hour, or if you've ever read the great speech, it lives on in the annals of, of the history of rhetoric. One of the great speeches, The Dark Hour, Winston Churchill. So they had just evacuated uh, the Dunkirk, and so they were facing invasion and defeat, almost certain invasion and certain defeat. And he holds forth this amazing speech before Parliament, and Churchill writes, this is just a section of the speech, 
He said, even though large tracts of Europe in many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of the Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. And he just continues to hold forth this bold proclamation of we will fight. We will fight in the waters. We will fight on the beaches. We will fight, fight. And then he yells victory three times and the speech is over. Well, so back up to 1940, same moment. And instead of the speech that they heard, make Churchill say this. Even though large tracts of Europe have fallen or may fail, victory is secure. I have good news. I've heard a woman is pregnant. Right, that doesn't land on us quite the same way. It's like, give me 20 years. <laughs> give me 20 or 30 years, right? In that situation, given the choice, if you just think about it, odds are stacked against you, given the choice between a good working F-16 and a baby, who picks the baby? Who goes with that? Well, it depends. The question we should be asking as Christians is, tell me more about the baby. <laughs> and Isaiah says, I'm glad you asked. The government will be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. <laughs> Notice the names of Messiah answer our deepest needs. Wonderful counselor. It's a name that Isaiah uses in chapter 28 to refer to God himself. And Jesus will arrive in his advent and he will be God. He will be the wonderful counselor Isaiah was talking about. And Jesus, as a wonderful counselor, he involves himself in our lives. He is imminent. He's not just transcendent. He's imminent. He's near. His words are a lamp to our feet. They're a light to our path. His words lift us out of darkness, the darkness of despair, the darkness of confusion. The wonderful counselor speaks to his people. One of the great consolations of being a Christian. You're guaranteed he leads. All who are his sons are led by him. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. So you watch Jesus show up in the gospels and he has authority over what? Everything. He speaks peace and the wind and the waves obey him. He shuts down the operations of evil powers that held people for years and years, he has power over sickness, power over death. We sing sometimes this song, who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. And Jesus shows up in the pages of the gospels and he says, I am that holy God. And he's large and in charge. He calls the shots what he says goes because he's the mighty God. Isaiah saw it. He called it 750 years in advance. Watch, watch him. Everlasting Father. Is this the Old Testament confusing the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity? The Father and the Son. No. It's a metaphor. That Jesus is not just going to be a ruler. His leadership is going to feel fatherly. It's not going to be like all the superpowers rolling through 
with Assyria and then Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome or whoever the next one happens to be. He'll be a mighty God, but his might won't feel like the empirical powers that we've gotten familiar with. His kingdom, to be sure, has hierarchy, but it's the hierarchy that feels like family. It's God the Father who tenderly cares for his children. And Jesus is going to remind us of that. He's going to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's the same policy of salvation. Everlasting Father and then Prince of Peace. So the word that best captured the longing of God's Old Testament people was peace. They would wish that upon you. They would say, shalom, or peace be upon you. And the Hebrew word shalom is so much bigger than our word for peace. It's, it's so much bigger than kind of the absence of conflict. Shalom speaks of universal human flourishing, stemmed to stern God's provision for his people. Everything is right. There's fruit on the vine, fruit in the field, body's healthy, the heart's joyful, sins are forgiven, the conscience is cleansed, the world is permeated with righteousness, peace, joy, and justice. God is on his throne and evil is gone. That's shalom. That's what they were waiting for and hoping for. And when Jesus arrives, Isaiah says, he's gonna be the prince of that. He's gonna bring that here. Now there's tension though in studying passages about all the wonderful things that will come about when Jesus enters the world. There's tension looking at those things and then looking at our world. So I have in my when I was studying this week, I had my Bible open and I had my computer here and I had my phone here. So I'm looking at the ancient world here and the notifications are popping up from the current modern world here. And it was just an interesting tension of seeing darkness in ancient times and darkness Wednesday. And here's Wednesday's darkness. First, there was news that a former pastor who had incredibly been reported as a sexual abuser for sexual assault and he was restored to ministry by four of his best friends and now they get to preach at each other's conferences. After seven, seven months ago, he got caught and then his four buddies said, I think you've been restored. And you could just see the trauma rocking through victims of assault, saying, how, how is this the right thing to do? How, how can Christians do this? And then this, Associated Press, November 30th, 2022, 6 a.m., breaking. At least 10 students were killed when a bomb blast hit a religious school in northern Afghanistan, a Taliban official says. 8.58 a.m., same day. Quote, Ukraine has rolled out hundreds of points of invincibility, a defiant name for makeshift centers around the country where beleaguered citizens can warm up, charge their phones, get some food, and entertain themselves. 10.34, same morning. Outbreak of severe thunderstorms and tornadoes wrought damage on the southeastern U.S. overnight with officials warning of continued risk today. 12 minutes later, 10.46 a.m., the telegraph, Jesus could have been transgender, claims Cambridge Dean. What do you call that? Darkness. Darkness. The darkness of confusion, the darkness of evil, the darkness of injustice, and the question for us is, what's that have to do with Christmas? What's that have to do with, for unto us, a child 
is born. Advent, rightly considered in Scripture, speaks of the renewal that began at Christ's first advent, his first entrance into the world in Bethlehem, and the renewal that will be consummated when Jesus Christ returns in his second advent in glory and in justice. And I watch those news updates on my right, and I look at this text with its promises on my left, and I'm just so freshly thankful that Christmas isn't just a holiday, it's a solution. It's a solution to the darkness we can't address by policy, by education, by politics. It's the twist ending of God. And when light comes to Zebulun and Naphtali, it comes at God's behest, at God's command. It says, our last verse of our passage is, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. World history bends in the direction of justice. You know, John the Baptist, he rolled out the carpet for Jesus Christ, and he said, let me tell you what it's gonna mean when he gets here. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain of pride shall be brought low, and the crooked places are gonna be straightened, and the rough places are gonna be made smooth. All forms of human rebellion against God, Christmas announced, the clock is ticking. All the chaotic forces of nature triggered by the fall, the clock is ticking. All forms of situational evil, violence, suffering, cancer, the clock is ticking. And as the famous Christmas carol said, in his name, in Jesus' name, all oppression shall cease. What hope we have when we sing these words about this advent and the arrival of Jesus. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's why writers will say things like, he's gonna make everything sad come untrue. Can I make this personal for you? There's... There's only one way for your individual life, the narrative of your life, to have a happy ending. And it's this. You trusting that Jesus' death on the cross covers all of your sin and trusting that his resurrection from the grave will promise you new life that starts now and lasts forever. And it's you acknowledging that by turning from your sin and what you trusted in a moment ago and putting all your trust in Jesus and giving all your allegiance to Jesus. God is the master storyteller and you can trust him with your whole life. I love what Tim Keller says about stories. He writes, we live in one of the first eras of history in which it is widely believed that a happy ending is the mark of inferior art. Why? Many are certain that ultimately life is meaningless and that happy endings are misleading at best. But one of the things that we are gonna be learning all throughout this month, and we learn every Advent season when we set aside time in our church calendar for this, is that God is the God of the twist ending. He can flip the script. He plans to flip the script. You were made to be surprised by joy. <laughs> That's why great literature writers, giants like Tolkien says this, quote, there is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true than the Christian story. As Tolkien saying, you thought it would be impossible for an ending to be this sweet, but guess what? It's gonna be that sweet. Story of God. God is writing it, and he's writing it through the work 
of Jesus, his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that story that God is writing, it has joy everywhere. It has joy in the beginning. It has joy in the middle. It has joy at the end. It has joy in Bethlehem. There's the beginning. It has joy in the empty tomb. There's the middle. And it has joy in the new Jerusalem when the king reigns on his throne forever in the new creation. And what do we learn from that? Darkness won't have the last word. Darkness will lift because God promised it would. And Advent is our reminder that God never breaks his promise.